If you were with us last week, you know that we are following the themes of Advent, and for this week, that theme is faith. And as we look at that this week, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter. We're going to be going to the third chapter, verses 8 through 15. Before we do that, however, as is typical, as usual, we need to talk about a little bit about the, the background, the, the context with which or into which Peter is writing. If you come to Peter or Jude, for that matter, um, and you begin to read, if you don't know a little bit about what is going on in the background, uh, you, you could be a little bit lost. If you remember weeks ago, we did talk about First uh, and Second Peter and Jude all in one week. It was the first of our New Testament series. And we spent most of our time talking about First Peter, uh, but I did mention that Second Peter and Jude are largely the same letter. Um, a lot of scholars think that one may have used the other in, in writing the letter. Um, it's also possible that there was uh, another letter or uh, history, oral history passing around that both of them drew on as they wrote their letter because so much of those two letters actually appear word for word and the themes are identical. And that theme is dealing with false teachers. And so the author of Second Peter is writing his letter uh, to deal with what was coming up in the church, and that was false teachers either within the church or from outside the church trying to lead uh, Christians astray, try to convince them that the teachings that they had been given, the, the message from Jesus, uh, the message the apostles were carrying to the world uh, was in fact false. And so Peter is writing to combat that. Now we don't know exactly what the false teaching was that both of these letters, both Second Peter and Jude, are addressing. Um, but we do know quite a bit actually about the philosophies and theologies that were swirling in the, in the culture at the time and were competing with the message of Christianity, the Orthodox teaching. And so we can say something about what might have been going on. Um, there was a rising school of philosophy known as Epicureanism. And this was a teaching that basically said that if there were gods, they did not deny that there were gods, but if they were, they really had nothing to do with our world. They existed far off in another place and they did not come to our world, they did not intervene, they had nothing to do with us at all, and so we might as well go about our life as if they don't exist uh, because they, they have no effect on our lives. Um, and as you can imagine, that undercuts a lot of what Judaism had to say and then Christianity had to say. Obviously, our story is one that tells about uh, a God who is intimately connected with not only creating, but then involved in the history of humanity, um, so much so that on Christmas Day, he sends his son into the world uh, to become one of us, to live alongside us, uh, to teach us, to save us. And so the threat of an Epicurean philosophy was a real threat because it undermined uh, everything that the Christians were trying to teach and believed in. As the Epicureans were looking at the church and the teachings in this period when this letter was written, which is the, the later part of the first century, so probably in that 80 to 90s, maybe even 100 uh, area or time frame, um, they were looking at particularly this claim or teaching that occurs in the Gospels where Jesus says that a number of things are going to happen uh, before this generation passes away. And of course, the, the church is expecting and anticipating the second coming, the time when Jesus comes back, which we to this day are still anticipating and expecting. Um, and as some people looked at the, at the scripture at that point, and still some to this day, look at those teachings and those uh, sort of foretellings or prophecies, if you will, about uh, the day of the Lord, the end time, the time when Jesus will come back and judge the world and create the, the new heaven and the new, new earth, 
They were looking at those teachings and expecting that that would happen soon. And when that didn't happen, it raised questions for the people who were reading it that way. And someone like an Epicurean would take that teaching and use it as proof that, hey, see, what you've been taught is wrong. God actually has nothing to do with the world. Nothing's changed. This hasn't come about. Uh, and so why believe in Jesus? Why believe in Christianity at all? As a result, Peter pens this letter and the author of Jude does the same with his to combat that sort of teaching, these, these teachings in which people, like I said, some, some actually inside the church, but a lot of theology and philosophy that existed outside of the church was trying to undercut and undermine the growing church uh, and, and the things that we believed. We should also say briefly that some of these concerns have really never left the church. When we read him talk about uh, the destruction of the temple and then he goes on to talk about um, some of the, the final judgment and the destruction that will happen in that day, there's a way to read that in which we understand and people have understood that all of that would happen within that first generation. I don't wanna go into too much detail about this today. It's not the purpose of our, our discussion, but I do wanna say that to read all of that as uh, being foretold to happen in that period, within that gen first generation, that 60, 70 years, um, is, is, a, is a misreading. And one of the ways we know that is that from the very beginning, the church did not talk that way. Um, they definitely talked about as if it could happen at any moment. Peter makes that point here in which, what we're gonna read today. Um, but remember, the author of Peter is writing in, within that first generation and talking about how he may not come anytime soon. Um, and so the fact that it didn't happen in the church uh, didn't really care. It's, it's not like that first generation passed away and then the subsequent generation was having to deal with that truth and re, uh, rethink things. It was that actual first generation was saying, hey, this isn't gonna happen necessarily before we're gone. So in that period of time. Um, and so it was not an afterthought. It was from the very beginning, it was being talked about that, hey, this might not happen with real quickness. Um, and so I, I say all that just to, to say, don't be alarmed by the worry that has been around for thousands of years that uh, the second coming hasn't happened yet. And so we need to question whether or not uh, any of this is true. That is exactly what the Epicureans were trying to convince Christianity of and why these letters get written. Um, and so some of that we're gonna talk about today, of course, but I just wanna head that concern off. Let's turn to our scripture now. Again, it's chapter three, verses eight to 15 of Second Peter. And it reads as follows. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will be dissolved with fire and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will be met with fire. But in accordance with this promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. As has become our custom, we're gonna walk through the scripture today and talk about uh, its meaning, verse by verse, and then after that, we'll talk about 
what in the world this has to do with faith as our theme for the second week of Advent as we, um, as we wait for the celebration of the birth of our Savior. And so as we get into first, verse 8, uh, right away, Peter begins to discuss and tackle this idea of the timing, which we, we talked about being the threat of the false teachers, uh, which he's trying to combat. And he makes the point that with God, one day is like a thousand, and that like a, a thousand days are like but one day. His point is, I think, somewhat obvious, but we need to talk about it briefly because it has been misconstrued at times. Uh, his point is sort of a, a general one, and it is that the time that we experience is not the time that God experiences, that his experience of time, of the passage of events, is different than ours. What has happened in the history of the church that in various moments, uh, people have gone to this scripture and another, uh, this, this idea comes out of the Old Testament, in fact, uh, even in Psalm 90, for example, uh, is, is this idea that one day is equivalent to a thousand for God. But people have attempted to make that an equation and, and a reality that one of our days is worth a thousand or vice versa, that one of God's days is worth a thousand days. And they've taken, usually the people that are trying to do that are trying to interpret the Genesis story. And then they take that and they say, okay, well, one day is, is a thousand years. And so we're talking about a 6,000 year period of creation. I just want to sort of warn or encourage you not to read that this way. This is not Peter's point. Certainly the fact that he says one is like a thousand and then comes around and says a thousand is like one. He's not making an equation. He's simply making the point that God experiences time different than ours. And so what seems to us to be a long period of time, what seems to us to be a delay or God's impatience uh, or God's inability to act is in fact not that at all because to him, this is but a blink of an eye. Beyond that, saying anything about the equivalency of time is, is pure speculation. There's nothing in the, the scripture that really gives us that sort of key or that equation, that mathematical formula so that we know what God's experience of time is like. All we can say is, especially here from Peter, is that it is other or different than our own. Then in verse nine, he goes on to say that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think slowness. Now again, that slowness, again, goes back to God's experience of time. So if God doesn't experience time like us, what we experience as perhaps a delay or slowness is not to God. Um, but the larger point that he's making here in attacking or answering the false teachers and the accusations and the uh, competing theologies or philosophies is a claim that God has not acted because he is late to the game or he is late because he is weak or incapable of acting. Um, and that was a charge that, had, that was swirling at the time. Um, Epicureans and others would come and say, look, your God is not powerful enough. He's not connected enough. Uh, he's, he can't bring about the promise or he can't bring about the second coming, this new heaven, this new earth that he spoke of. Uh, and so he's, he's weak. Why would, you, why would you dare or even think about following such a God? Peter in verse nine here goes on to make the point that what we may think about slowness or the, the accusation that God is tardy or slow or late to the game, what we think of as perhaps uh, slowness is in fact God's patience. And this is uh, important. To us, patience is a virtue. We, we even have that phrase, patience is a virtue. But for culture at this time, that was not the case. There, as the Greek world and therefore the Roman and all of the pagan world was talking about morality, as they were talking about the way they ought to live in the world, the actions they should try to do, those things that they ought not do, 
um, they were leaning heavily upon Aristotle's philosophy, which was known as virtue ethics. And Aristotle gave the world a list of ethics or a list of virtues that were based upon the thriving of the community. And so his list was a whole bunch of things that were good. And they were good because if everyone embodied these virtues, well, then the whole community would thrive. On that list, you would not find patience. Patience was not a virtue. And so for Peter to mention this here, to inject this into the conversation, to say that what you take as slowness. So in that time, if patience is not a virtue, as people were looking at God and looking at this delay, this was an unvirtuous act. This was... uh, this, would, this ran against the thought and the ideas about what was good, um, that if the second coming, if, if this judgment day, the day of the Lord, the new heavens, the, the new earth, if that was the ultimate goal, then the best thing would be for that to happen quickly. And so that, was, that would be the way the world would have thought based upon the ethical system that they had inherited. And what Peter is showing us here and saying to his people is, no, 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 actually what is going on is God is being patient. And in fact, as he goes on to say, that patience is good for you, that God is exerting this patience so that we may not perish, so that you, he says, you may not perish. And so it is God's hope that all would come to repentance and the delay that we are experiencing, this period between Christ's ascension that happens in the story of Acts and his ultimate second coming, the day of the Lord, the judgment day, this period, this in-between period is God's purpose. This, this time is serving his purpose to bring about repentance for as many people as possible. And so he is giving us as the human race, people, mankind, he's giving us the time to come to the realization of, of him, to come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul or Peter here is arguing that this period is a good thing. It is not the bad thing. It is not the, the delay that is uh, showing a weakness of God or an unvirtuousness of God. Um, it, it is in fact, patience is a virtue. It is a good thing. And it is for our benefit that God is delaying his second coming. And then into verse 10, the theme abruptly switches and we go from the patience of the Lord to the coming of the day, which we're told will come quickly with a loud noise. And this uh, word or the idea behind this sort of loud noise is um, a a noise that is created by something rushing by very quickly. So think about standing on a platform for a train and having the train whiz by real quickly. It's it's that sort of loud noise that sort of uh, when it comes, it's coming very quickly. And and that certainly echoes Jesus's instructions uh, and, and Paul's instructions about the coming day uh, when when Christ will return, that it will come upon us quickly. Um, And so Peter is saying here, hey, just be aware that when this thing does finally happen, uh, although there will be a delay, there likely will be a delay, and that is God being patient with us when God finally makes his decision to come, when Christ comes back from the day of the Lord, the judgment day, it will come upon us as a surprise. And then he tells us that when it happens, it will come with fire. And There have been, of course, ways in which this has been understood to be sort of ultimate destruction of the earth, that God's going to burn everything up, um, that the world will somehow explode, you know, all sorts of different interpretations of that coming day. What I want to sort of bring back to our, the front of our mind was a conversation we had when we talked about Revelation in which John has this picture of Christ with flames in his eyes. 
And we talked about how this idea of fire in the text, in the biblical text, is not a, a fire of destruction, but a fire of refinement. And so that at the day of judgment, when, when Christ returns, when he comes back uh, to, to judge the world, the fire that he brings with him is not, not a destructive fire, but rather a refining fire. And even here, Peter goes on to say that everything that is done on and in the earth will be disclosed. And so this, this fire that comes to the earth with Christ at the day of judgment, at the day of the Lord, is a fire that uh, burns away all of sort of the evil acts, the unjust acts. Um, and this goes back to you know, the parables of the wheat and the chaff and, and the teachings of Jesus himself, that all of the unrighteousness will be burned away and what will be left will be the wheat, will be the goodness, the, the righteousness. And all of these things, all of the deeds of mankind, the acts that we have done over time, will be laid bare during this time. And so um, what we don't have here is a picture of utter destruction, but this time when God comes back to judge the world, and at that moment, everything that everyone has done will be laid before him and judged accordingly. So to this point, Peter has sort of combated the, the false teaching, this idea that the delay that we're experiencing as the church um, is somehow a, a fault or a proof that, it is, that the whole promise is not true. Uh, he's, he's attacked that head on. He's now warned us that, hey, be careful, uh, just be on guard because this could happen at any moment, um, which again echoes the, the instruction and sort of the warning that we find all over the New Testament. But then he goes on into verse 11 to sort of say, okay, so, so what, right? And he says, given that all of that is gonna happen, how should we be conducting ourselves? Um, this is the reality that we find ourselves in. We live in this in-between time. We live in this time after Christ, we found or received redemption. Um, how ought we be going about our life between then and the time when God will come back? And he tells us that we ought to be living, it's sort of embedded in the question even, but we ought to be living with holiness, with godliness, uh, we ought to be waiting for God. And he says, hastening the day of the Lord. And we're gonna to return to that idea here in a minute because it's an important concept. Um, but his instruction is, as is Paul's and Jesus's, is, is that we ought to be living as if this could happen at any moment because in truth, it could. Uh, certainly, as we sit here in the year 2020, it's been 2000 years almost since uh, Jesus was crucified, resurrected and ascended. But, um, we still live with the reality that at any moment he could return and the day of the Lord could come upon us. And so we ought to be living as if that could happen, but we ought not live fearfully. We ought to live faithfully is, is his point. Um, and he continues that point on into verse 12 and 13, um, that we, we wait and we, we do so faithfully uh, and we're waiting for that day of judgment. Uh, and in there in verse 13, he goes on to say uh, that we wait in accordance with his promise. We wait for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home. And so uh, in his discussion about what it is we're waiting for, he's reiterating this promise of, of a new heaven, a new earth, a time when all will be made right, when God's justice will reign. And again, we've talked about that idea before that, that what God means by justice is not everyone getting their just desserts and what they deserve although that can be a piece of it, but justice is a much broader holistic concept of God making everything right. Um, and so we wait for the time when God, Christ will return, judge the world 
and in doing so, bring that refining fire, which will help to bring about a new heaven and a new earth in which everything will be made right. And then into the tail end of what we read today, we read uh, Peter exhort, encourage his readers, his church, to be at peace with God, to live pure lives, uh, to relish this time that we have, uh, not to be impatient ourselves, not to think that God is somehow uh, incapable of bringing about his promise, but rather to understand that it is God's patience with us that is, that is causing us to experience this, uh, that this delay is God being patient with us so that we might be brought to salvation, uh, both us and, and those around us. In what we've read, Peter is tackling head on this worry uh, and the accusations that have come about as a result of the worry over the delay of the return of Christ. And he has made it very clear that the reason for that delay is for our betterment, is for our benefit. It is so that we and the world and those around us can come to the moment of repentance. We have in our popular culture this idea that to repent is simply to change our mind. It is to agree that Jesus is our savior, to mentally assent to that fact. But repentance biblically is much more than that. It is not only a rethinking, but a reorienting of your life around something new. And so to say that we ought to repent in light of what Jesus has done and who he is, what we're saying is we need to rethink everything. We need to rethink the way that we live our life. We need to rethink our priorities, the things that we do, the way we behave and act, the way we interact with other people. Um, that everything we do needs to be rethought and reoriented and recalibrated around the truth of the gospel. And Peter is saying that God in his patience is allowing us the time individually and corporately to be able to work through that. Inherent in what Peter is saying is another biblical truth that shows up multiple times. And it is that our actions, our faithful repentance and our proclaiming of the gospel and leading of others to repentance can actually hasten the day. It can speed things up. That's why in the list of ways that we ought to be acting in this interim period, he includes hastening the day of the Lord, right? Because what we do matters and it actually impacts the length of the delay. So if God is delaying the second coming so that we can repent, well, that implies that if we repent and we as a culture, as a church, as, as a world, as humanity, come to repentance quicker, the need for that delay shortens and we can hasten the day of the second coming. I wanna spend just a minute talking about that a little bit more and drawing that concept out because I realize that it may be foreign to a lot of us. Um, if we go to Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end times and he talks about how we can hasten that time Jesus himself says, we can hasten that day by proclaiming the gospel. In Mark 13, Jesus speaks of God cutting the end short, this idea that this period between uh, the ascension and the second coming, the new heaven and new earth, can be cut short by God, that God knows the day, he knows the time, but that in some way that's flexible, and it's flexible based upon the way we as humanity respond and the way that we act. And then in Luke 13, Jesus tells a parable about uh, a master coming to his vineyard and finding a tree that has not borne any fruit and he's ready to chop it down. The gardener responds, no, give me a year, let me tend to it, let me care for it. And if in a year's time it hasn't 
hasn't produced, then we can chop it down and the master changes his mind and decides to give it more time. And it's a parable about the very thing that Peter's talking about, this patience of God, this, the fact that God bears with us to give us time to repent, to give us time to come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus. Inherent in all of these scriptures and instructions and teachings of Jesus and of the other New Testament writers, and even in the Old Testament, this idea shows up uh, in Isaiah 60 even, the idea that the restoration of Israel, God will hasten based upon the faithfulness of Israel. Um, so this is not an idea that is, that is new by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it is the idea that God is certainly sovereign, that he can come or he can do whatever it is that he's gonna do. He can restore Israel, he can bring the Messiah, he can bring the second coming whenever he sees fit. Uh, it is up to him, but that he will make that decision based upon our actions uh, because he loves, with us, loves us and will be patient with us. But the quicker we can get our act together, the quicker that time can come. Um, and and that's, that's an important, it's, a, it's not just important, it's a crucial and fundamental understanding to have as a Christian. The question that we wanna to turn to now, given that this is the second week of Advent and we have a theme of faith as we approach uh, the celebration of Jesus' birth, is what does all of this have to do with faith? Um, and we need to sort of echo the same sort of theme and idea that we, did, we talked about as we, as we addressed repentance. This whole idea of coming to a knowledge of God, of Jesus and the truth of the cross and the work that he has accomplished there um, is that the result is sim not simply just, just belief. Okay, it's not just a mental agreement that, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but rather it is a holistic, entire self-response and reorienting, as we said, with repentance, that whatever faith is, as James will tell us, faith is not just belief, it is action, that faith certainly is the thing that saves us. It is our belief, our acceptance of the gift that God has given to us that, that saves us, but it is in receiving that, being indwelled by the Spirit, to come into that realization. You can't do that and not be changed. You can't do that and not love other people. You can't receive the gift of the Spirit and not act faithfully. So that bound up in the idea of faith is action. True faith is not just belief, although it is that. True faith does not just save us, although it does that. True faith is faith that acts. It is a faith that proclaims the word of God in both word and deed. It is faith that works for and seeks justice. It is faith that works for and seeks restoration. And true faith, that active faith in the world, actually works to hasten the day of the return of Jesus. I have mentioned before that one of the reasons Jesus uh, interacted with and con conflicted with the Pharisees so strongly is that they were actually so similar. And this is one of the ways in which that they were similar. The Pharisees understood their purpose. Their, their goal was to call Israel back to a pure belief, back to Torah observance. They were asking for a very strict application of Torah and the purity laws because what they understood coming out of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, Isaiah and, and the others, was that when Israel did its part, when it fulfilled its obligations under the covenant, it was then that God would send the Messiah. And so they were trying to get Israel to act rightly so that the time of the Messiah could be brought about. The debate and the discussion that Jesus was having with them often is, not whether or not that's true, but rather 
what does it mean to be faithful to Torah? What does it look like? Is it a strict observance or is it one that perhaps is a little looser and relies more heavily upon love of God and love of neighbor? And we see, of course, that Jesus argues for the latter while the Pharisees are arguing for the first. Um, this principle doesn't go away. We see it echoed here in Peter. We see it echoed in Paul. We certainly see it in the teaching of Jesus as we've, as we've talked about already. The idea that by being faithful, by seeking justice, by doing the things that Jesus taught us to do, we can literally prepare the way, we can hasten the day of the second coming. I have mentioned this before and we've talked about this, this idea that as we live on this side of Jesus's death and his resurrection and his ascension and his life and his teaching, uh, but not yet in the second coming. Uh, and so it's this now but not yet time in which some of the promise has been fulfilled. We still wait for the ultimate fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth, that we are called to participate in the act of restoration, in this process that has to take place in order to bring that about. And that's what Peter is drawing our attention here to today. And, and why this idea of faith and the idea that faith is way more than just belief is so utterly important. I told you earlier that it's crucial for Christians as Christians that we understand this idea that what it means to be a people of faith is not simply to believe. James, if you recall, says that even the demons believe. What it means to be a people of faith is to be a people that embodies the life and teaching of Jesus. It is to be little Christ, which is exactly what Christian means. Christian literally means little Christ. And if we don't understand that, we are, we are pushing out further and further this day when all can be made right. If we understand that we are to be faithful people who act in accordance with the teaching of Jesus, that we act in accordance with the prompting and the leading of the Spirit, that we act in ways that bring about the restoration of the world, uh, if we act in ways that seek justice and love and restoration, that we are actually partnering with God. And in doing so, we are preparing the way and bringing closer the time when this new heaven and new earth, when the ultimate promise can come about. As we sit here today on the second week of Advent, waiting for the time when we celebrate the coming of Jesus, and we think about that story, we think about particularly the opening narrative that Luke tells us, uh, we actually, we see tangibly the role that humans, people play in bringing about the promise of God. Remember, of course, that what we're talking about is the coming Messiah. This is the, the great hope of Israel, the promise that has been made that God will send a Messiah to restore Israel. But that doesn't happen without the participation, the willing faithfulness of people. And in particular, in this instance, of both Mary and Joseph. And it's why we have these these narratives about both of them in which God visits them through an angel and tells them this is what's going to happen. And we see both of them willingly accept. We see them act out in faithfulness to, to listen to God, to accept what he wants to do through them. And it's in that acceptance, it's in that faithful action that God works. What happens if Mary says no? And what happens if Joseph says I don't, I don't believe the angel that's before me. I don't believe the word of God. I think that Mary has had an affair on me. She's slept with another man and gotten pregnant before I've married her, and I'm gonna bail on her. What happens? Well, obviously we don't know. We can only speculate. 
but what we have is a story in which that doesn't happen, and the model that we have is one in which Mary and Joseph faithfully accept the thing that God wants to do with them, and they act in accordance with his wishes. And as a result of their faithful action, Christmas happens. The Messiah is born. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is incarnated as a human to come live amongst us, to teach, to offer us uh, the way in which we ought to live, and then, of course, to ultimately die, to be crucified and to be resurrected, uh, to conquer death, and in that act, bring us into right relationship with God once again. Uh, but that's, that's made possible in part because of the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph. As we sit here today in the second week of Advent, waiting to celebrate the birth of our Savior, we reflect on faith and what it means to be faithful people, what it means to be followers of Jesus, what it means to be people of God. And we are reminded and we are encouraged by Peter that we ought to act faithfully, that we ought to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. We ought to be the people that he's called us to be, that we ought to act justly, live righteously. Uh, and we ought to realize that we have a call to participate. It is not just conforming to a set of rules so that we become the right people. It is far more than that in responding to the call to act faithfully in this world. We are called to prepare the way to make straight the path for the second coming of our Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your servant who has written these words. We thank you that he did not shy away from the challenge that was presented itself in that early century, the challenge of false teachers, the challenge of questions about the delay which was, the church was experiencing in the second coming, which we still experience. If we are honest, we too wonder at times about when the second coming will come, when Lord will all be made right, when will the new heavens and new earth come upon us. And so as we sit today and we read and hear about the time when you will come and, and the ways in which we ought to conduct ourselves in the interim and the ways in which we ought to be faithful people, Lord, we, we ask you to grant us today the discernment, the knowledge, the wisdom, the strength, the capacity, the power of your spirit in order to live in that way, Lord. We recognize today and accept our role, our call to participate with you in bringing about the restoration of this world. We recognize that we have a part to play, that we have an obligation to do the things that you have called us to do, not just to believe, but to act. And so today, Lord, we ask that you would hear these prayers, that you would fill us individually and corporately with your spirit, and that you would show us the ways that we ought to be more rightly and truthfully your sons and daughters. We thank you for the gift of these words. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we thank you for the birth, life, teachings, and certainly the death and resurrection and the accomplishments of your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name and in the power of your spirit we ask and pray all these things. Amen.